He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. We are in Ephesians chapter 2. Yeah, well good, some excitement, I love it. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. It's been called by many commentators, uh, really the distilled essence of the Christian faith, what it means to be a born-again believer. Uh, But I was talking to Jeff this morning, and really it's more than the distilled essence of the Christian faith. It is really a letter about what it means to be alive what it means to have purpose, what it means to be a human being, and not just exist, but truly live. Chapter 1, Paul is really um, just so excited about sharing with the church in Ephesus all that Christ has done for us. He uses that term, in Christ, what we have in Christ. And it's just this long run-on sentence as Paul uh, really has this outburst of adoration for what Jesus has done for him and for the church. And Paul also reminds us that God had us in mind before the foundation of the world, that his plan has always been to adopt us into his family through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, and that it's in him that we are made holy, meaning we are set apart for sacred use and we are without blame. And that's what brings God pleasure. God finds pleasure in seeking and saving the lost. And so here was the point from last week. Before you ever did anything that was worthy of love, God loved you. Because he is the source of the affection, not any good work that you can do for him. His love and affection can't be earned because it exists outside of our good deeds. It's his nature God is love. That's why the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is what? Love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And again, that word love, a lot of times we attribute the worldly idea of love, where you earn my love, you're doing something that is deserving of my love, you are lovable, so in turn I will love you. But the love the Apostle John is talking about is love without strings attached. It's the love of God. I don't love you because you're lovable, I love you because God has first loved me and he has accepted me, and he has saved me, and regardless of what you can do for me, you are a child of God, and you are valuable, and you are worthwhile, and because of that, I love you. And there's no strings attached. Guys, that's a supernatural kind of love, and it doesn't exist apart from the Spirit of God living it out 
through us. So that's what Paul is so excited about. He's talking about this amazing reality that we get to be in Christ and manifest the person of Christ to a world that desperately needs to see Jesus. And I don't know about you, but as I study Paul's words, I'm convicted. And I ask myself, do I have that same appreciation and adoration for what Jesus has done for me? That I just can't help but have an outburst of adoration. But in chapter 2, Paul invites us deeper into that love and appreciation for all that Jesus has done, because if we're honest, it's not often that we share Paul's affection, but he's going to help bring us there. And remember, this isn't Christianity 101. This is what it means to be alive. A lot of people wonder, what's the meaning of life? Why am I here? Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit, is going to make that hopefully plain to us. Let's pray. God, we desperately ask for the moving of your Holy Spirit. Not that we would have more of your Spirit, but that your Spirit would have more of us. That we would surrender, that we would yield to your will, that we would trust that your ways are high above our own. So give us hearts of surrender and submission. Help us to trust you because you are a good God and your plans and purposes are good. They are not easy and you consistently bring us to the end of ourselves so that we will trust you. We know that you're constantly refining and shaping us and bringing us through the trials of life to produce patience in us. But Lord, that's what we want to be as your church. We want to demonstrate to a world with no foundation what it looks like to have the only foundation, and that is the foundation of Jesus Christ. We don't want to be conformed to the worries of this world and the anxiety of this world and the hopelessness and everything that it comes with walking in step with the world. We want this world to see you. We are your church. Help us to be your church. We love you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we'd all agree probably that there's a difference between simply existing and living. Oscar Wilde once said, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist and that is all. If you guys remember the movie Braveheart, right after Braveheart came out for like 10 years, every sermon seemed to have the quote, every man dies, but not every man really lives. The Roman poet, Otis, made the phrase carpe diem popular in his day. It's a term that you still hear today, carpe diem, what does that mean? Seize the day. A modern translation that we haven't used for like a decade, so if you're young in here, don't 
judge me, is YOLO. You guys remember YOLO? It was like 2012 when the famous poet Drake made that possible. And YOLO meant you only live once. But it's funny. I think uh, maybe some people are oblivious to the fact that this is the only life we have and that we need to take advantage of what we have, the, the time we've been given on this earth. But there's disagreement on what it means to live. What does it mean to take hold of today? What does it mean to seize the day? What does it mean to truly live? See, carpe diem is a famous phrase, but the words that come after it, not many people know. The Roman poet wrote, carpe diem, quam minimum credula posterio, meaning Seize the day, live like there is no tomorrow. And isn't that the essence of you only live once? Because usually teenagers say YOLO and then they jump out of a moving car or they try to jump over a car or they jump out of a plane or something like that. It's an excuse for engaging in very dangerous behavior because you only live once. Is that what it means to truly live? In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, King Solomon writes, Eat, drink, and be merry, because a man has nothing better under the sun. Eat, drink, and be merry, because really, what else is there to life? Pursue pleasure and get as much as you can, because one day you will die. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 22 writes, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now you guys are smart enough to know that Isaiah and King Solomon aren't encouraging this behavior, but it's actually a warning because it's a description of the godless life. If there is no God, this is how we should live. If there is no purpose to life, why not self-medicate until we die? See, most people don't know what it means to live. All they think it means is to just get what we can, enjoy life as much as we can, because this is it. There's nothing for us after. But I'll tell you this, people may not know what it means to live, but I know that they know the feeling of not living. You know what I mean? They may not know how to live, but when they go to sleep at night, they surely know that it, this ain't it. Seeking pleasure day after day, and that's it. Self-seeking, self-preservation, waking up, going to a nine-to-five job, coming home, watching TV, going to sleep, maybe going to the casino, maybe going to the bar, maybe going out and trying to find some type of excitement. I've, I've shared this story with you guys a, full, uh, a few times. One of the saddest commentaries on the condition of America today for me was I, when, when I worked in health insurance. And one of my accounts was Boyd Gaming. They ran a number of the casinos throughout the United States. And they had a, few, a casino on one of the rivers in Peoria, Illinois. And I went out and I did a benefits fair at this casino. And this casino had been there for years and years and years. And it was evident because when they gave me a tour of the casino, there was years and years and years of cigarette smoke embedded in this 
seaworthy ship that was sitting out on the side of the river. And as I looked across the casino floor and I saw many, many elderly people with their oxygen tanks, and it wasn't even pulling the hinge anymore. Now you push the button, right? And they were spending the last days of their lives looking for just one more high, one more jackpot. And even if they won, what would they have done with the money? They would have put it back in. But that's the all that life is. And it may look a little different than that. But without Christ, we're just pushing that button, trying to get some kind of reward, some type of momentary gratification. But I know when we lay down at night, if that's our life, we know this isn't it. We long for something deeper. This discouragement when day after day we feel our lives passing by without purpose and we know there must be something more. Now let me tell you this, that is different than being a born again follower of Jesus where you just have these seasons of training, you know, seasons of being out in the wilderness where maybe there's not a whole lot of fruit on the vine, but you know you love Jesus and you know he's doing a work in you and it's, 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 uh, It's just a dry season. Because to say that following Jesus is this emotional high from start to finish is just a lie, right? But that's different than day after day feeling our lives are passing by without purpose. Let me give you two statements from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The first one is in Ephesians 2 verse 1. You might want to highlight this. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Remember, Paul's dealing with identity here. He's dealing with who we are before he moves on to what we must do. He spends three chapters on making our identity in Christ plain before he ever moves to, and this is what we should do in light of it. And he says, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And then Ephesians 2 verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. This is the foundation. See, to really understand what it means to live... To truly live, we have to understand where we came from, we have to understand where we are, and we have to understand where we're going. We have to understand who we were, we have to understand who we are, and we have to understand who we will one day be. And Paul lays the groundwork for all of that. This is our identity. And when that's comes into perspective we start to develop an appreciation for what God has done and a humility because right thinking about what we have been saved for is directly tied to right thinking about what we have been saved from and sometimes I don't think we fully understand what God has delivered us from let me tell you what it doesn't mean to be in Christ Can we start there for a second? 
We've been talking a lot about what it means to be in Christ, but let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Following Jesus isn't simply a new set of rules to live by. Being a a follower of Christ is not simply a new set of convictions or a new set of morals and ethics. It's not a new set of rules or interests. It's not, oh, I believe this thing at one time, but now I believe this thing. Now, it is partly that, but it is definitely not only that. It's not like, man, I I like playing Les Pauls, but now I'm more of a Stratocaster kind of guy. Or I, I was really into, uh, ladies, I'm, I was looking for an analogy that you guys would understand. So farmhouse decor, right? And now I like shabby chic. How did that land? Not so good? Okay, I'll work on it. I need more help from my wife. It's not just a change of preferences. I was into, when I was in junior high, my pant legs were huge. They covered my entire shoe because you could fit wine bottles in your back pocket. I don't dress that way anymore. I've had a change in interest, but we treat following Jesus the same way, that all we've done is kind of traded one set of beliefs for another. That is not what it means to be in Christ. We were once dead, and now we are alive. We were dead, and Christ has made us alive. And we don't even begin to appreciate the grace of God until we understand what we have been saved from. It's a tragedy when the church fails to recognize the significance of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Remember in Ephesians 1.19, Paul wrote, what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul is saying we share in that power, the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead in love, that same power flows out for us as he bends over and pulls us out of the grave, out of our sins. It's no less transcendent, one commentator writes, than Christ's resurrection. Your salvation is no less transcendent than what God accomplished when he raised Jesus from the dead. Do we think that way? Do we uh, attach ourselves to Christ's death and his resurrection? Do we look at our new life and our transformation and what Jesus has done in us? And we say, yeah, it's just like him rising from the grave. Because it is. We have been made alive. We share in Christ's death and his resurrection. Jesus was dead in the grave, and we were no less dead in our sins. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he sits at the right hand of his heavenly Father, and we have been raised from the dead, and we will one day share in the presence of God in heaven forever. 
So let's take a look. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And Paul writes, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience, among also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. This is who we once were. This is who we once were. So let's examine our condition for a moment before we, made, we were made alive in Christ. Paul says we were dead in our offenses meaning we were dead in our transgressions and our failures. The idea here is effort without effect. Have you ever felt that way? Where you were working on something and working on something and working on something, but you never had anything to show for it? Some of you are like, yeah, that's describing my job every single day. But how many of you can relate to that? I remember when I was working for my dad's concrete company, and my foreman I realized later was just trying to find something for me to do because that day there was nothing to do. So he told me to go dig a hole. And he said that I was looking for some conduit that was running to a light in the yard. And he said, I need you to find this conduit, start digging. I dug all day long and I never found it. And then he said, well, it must not be there, fill it back in. I got paid for it, but it felt kind of pointless. That's the story of many people's lives. We work tirelessly to no avail. Every day we're working hard, but we're producing very little, and anything that we do produce, it disappears. That was the old life. Isn't that the story of the parable of the man who built his house on the sand and the man who built his house on the rock? Those two men had something in common. The man who built his house on the sand had a house for a moment, didn't he? If someone were to walk by just as he builds his house on the sand, just as he puts that last nail in that home, if they would walk by, they would say, oh, look, there's a house. And the man that built his house on the rock, the same thing. But it wasn't until what happened did the fruit of those efforts manifest. The storms of life. See, that's where we get tripped up. We think that what we're building is actually valuable. We think what we're investing in is actually worthwhile because for a moment something is standing. So we can be living in a life of sin and rebellion against God. And I'm not just talking about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I'm just talking about living in rebellion. God, I have no concern about what you'd want from me. I'm going to live this life on my own, and we can work, and we can build, and we can have a home, but then when the trials of life hit, it wipes out everything that we had built. And that's the story of many people's lives. They work, they work, and they work, but when the trials come, they have no foundation, nothing standing. It's not until we build on the rock, rock that is Jesus Christ, it's not until that that we have a structure that can withstand the trials of life. So Paul says that's who we were. We were 
exerting effort without effect. We were working tirelessly to no avail. That's who we were before Christ. And then he says, we were walking in step with the course of this fallen world. We were walking in step with the systems of this fallen world. We were heading to the same place this fallen world is heading. Well, where is that? If you will, take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. This is King Solomon's description that he had firsthand experience of, of what it means to live out a life separated from God. That's what Ecclesiastes is. It's a man who had all the resources in the world to have anything that he wanted, to find purpose and meaning apart from God. Because isn't that what humanity has wanted from the beginning? Adam and Eve, that was the temptation. You can be like God without God. You can be like him. You can have you can have the garden without the gardener. You can have the kingdom without the king. Just live by your own wisdom and efforts and ingenuity. And King Solomon describes that life. And he starts, vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away, another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after it's the description of the human experience. We keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again, and we don't learn from our ancestors. Purposeless, meaningless, working, struggling, fleeting pleasures, and then we die. Walking in step with the world. And then he says, we're walking, and if, if that's not bad enough, we're walking in step with the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Satan. Now, Satan, do you know Satan's not his name? It's his description. It's the Satan. It means the adversary. He is the one that opposes God's good rule and his good reign. That's Satan, the devil. 
He says, you once walked in step with the devil, the one who hates and seeks to destroy the image of Christ and will do everything in his power to distort God's good plan and purposes. Have you noticed there's a growing hostility against Christ? People who follow Jesus Christ? Now, here in America, we're starting to feel it a little bit more, but that's been the story of humanity since the early church because that is the system of the world, and that's what it means to walk in step with the prince of the power of the air. He hates the image of Christ. He hates the rule of God because it's good and it brings life. And Paul elaborates on the spirit of, or this prince of the power of the air. He says, it's the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. How did the devil work in your life before you came to know Christ? He drew you into lives of rebellion and ruin with the promise that you can be your own God, right? That you can be in control, that you know what's best for you. How'd that work out? That somehow you can get to the heavenly places by your own wisdom and resourcefulness and effort. Isn't that the story of the Tower of Babel? We can make our own path to God. We can build our own tower to get there. We don't care that there's only going, there is only one way to heaven. We're going to find a different way. And that's what the world is looking for, a different way to utopia, a different way to this world where we live in peace and harmony and there's no more suffering. But there is only one way, and his name is Jesus Christ. So we walked in step with the world, we walked in step with the devil, and then he says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, we were driven by the lusts of our flesh. Who was our God before Christ? You may have been part of a different religion, but ultimately before Christ, who was our God? It's that God that we woke up to every morning and we looked in the mirror. The heart wants what the heart wants, right? Follow your heart. That's the the story of the world we live in. Really, it's let your lusts drive you. If you want it, it must be good. That's pretty animalistic, isn't it? And that's the way the world lives. We are driven by our animalistic desires for sex, power, and physical pleasure. And we we can kind of cover that up a little bit, but when you drill down on how we spend our money, we will see where our heart lies. That's what Jesus said, where your treasure is there your heart lies. The porn industry generates more income than the combined revenues of ABC, NBC, and CBS. And more than the combined revenues of the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball. It's on pornography. In 2018, Americans spent $253 billion on alcohol alone. That's just one substance. And I know scripture says do not get drunk. It does not say it's a sin to have a drink, but $253 billion, that's not being spent on a single drink. 
Opioid addiction is killing record numbers of Americans each year. Roughly two out of three U.S. adults are overweight or obese. Why do I bring that all up? Because we are self-destructive. When we're left to our own devices, it's astonishing that we can be so ingenious and at the same time so deliberately ignorant that we can ponder the deeper things of life and acknowledge that there's something more than this, but still engage in behaviors that ultimately destroy us. That's what it means to walk in step with this wicked world, the devil, and our own flesh. That's who we once were. And it's sad because sometimes we sit back and reflect on it, and we're like, that's kind of who I am right now. Paul says, we were children of wrath and sons of disobedience. That means children of anger, filled with hatred, and that we were sons of rebellion. Again, he's tapping into the history of humanity. What is the history of humanity? It's a world at war. Now, we've lived in a, a, a very uncommon time of peace in American history, but the world predominantly has been at war with itself. Nation against nation, country against country, civil wars where it's brother against brother, wars between people and friends and families. Humans have been in conflict since Cain and Abel, since the fall of man. We are relationally dysfunctional. And it's interesting because there's a cry for peace, isn't there? The world cries for peace. Why can't we all just get along? I'll tell you why. If you're curious, come join us here at the daycare. Step into a classroom of toddlers and preach peace. Because peace is a great idea until someone has what I want. Everyone should get along until that person has what I want. And the, the biggest problem is I didn't know I wanted it until that person had it. And then I decided, no, I, I want that. We think, oh man, that's childish behavior. Guys, that's the story of humanity. There can be no peace because our hearts are selfish. We want what we want, and when someone gets in the way of what we want, there's conflict. Everybody can't have their own way. So the powerful, they oppress the weak, and they take what they want. So the world is about fighting for power and influence and wealth. That's what James tells us in James 4.1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. But when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask amiss. Why? So that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Man, what an encouraging message this morning. Guys, here's the central point. We once, we once walked in step with the world, the devil and our flesh, and we were steadily walking towards our 
own graves. Because that's where the world is headed. And that's where Satan is headed. Because God is a good God. And one day he will bring this all to an end. And we were walking in step with the world and the devil and our flesh. Those are our three enemies. But what's the next two words in verse 4? But God. Gives me goosebumps. But God. This is our story, guys. This is where we were heading. This is my but God story. I was sitting in a car after I had paid for my girlfriend's abortion and she had gone through with it. And I was sitting in my car with my brother going to pick up a pizza and God said, I still love you. And I broke. But God broke through. And he reminded me, I still love you and I still have a plan and a purpose for your life. And that's when he pulled me out of that path. I was walking in step with the world. That says a child is simply an inconvenience. And God broke through. That's what those, you want to sum this book up? Two words, but God. God created a people to be with him. And we said, no, we don't want that. We want to be our own God. But God broke through, even in the midst of our rebellion. Look at what, it, what Paul writes. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's the story of Scripture. But God, because of his great love, he made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised up, verse 6, together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved to faith, through faith. Just in case Paul says you missed it. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see the new path now? First and foremost, salvation is of God, not of, of, of man. Again, I, I'm going to repeat this until the day I die. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion. It's not about what we can do for God. It's about what God has done for us. That's where it begins. It's a gift of grace, not of works, so that any man, so no man can boast. God loved us before the foundation of the world. He had a plan for us. 
He, he executed that plan. He sought us out. He saved us. But he saved us for good works. So now we get to walk in them. We walked in step with the world, the devil and our flesh, but now we get to walk in the spirit of God. Do we do that every day? No. But why not? When we really understand what Christ has accomplished for us, shouldn't we yearn to to walk in obedience? Because that's where life is. See, God was the adversary to our adversary. 1 John 3, 8, the Apostle John writes, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So God broke through. And he saved us. And we could go around and we can tell this, our own personal stories of how God broke through. But God. This is the way I was living. But God. He broke through. I didn't find him. He found me. And because of his, the riches of his mercy and his great love for me, he made me alive in Christ. And we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. This is returning. This is what it's about. It's not about being something different than what we were supposed to be. It's coming back into that place of acknowledging God created us to be with us and to restore us to a right relationship with him, a relationship that had been spoiled by sin, and now we get to walk with him. We get to share his heart. We get to be led by his desires. Guys, that is what it means to live. That's what it means to be alive and not simply exist. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's saying as Gentiles, you didn't even have the oracles of God. You didn't have the Old Testament. You were just living by whatever uh, worldly uh, uh, principles were presented to you. And again, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. That means that separation between Jew and Gentile, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. There is born again, transformed, spirit-filled followers of Jesus Christ. 
and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were afar off and those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Again, hear the invitation if you've never stepped into the truth that God loves you, you're separated from God because of sin and rebellion, but God has made a, a way for you to be made right with him, and that's through his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who came and died for your sins and rose again three days later, nailing your sins to the cross. The Lord is calling you near. And you can come near if you will just accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It says, believe in your hearts and confess with your mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's, again, as I've said many times, it's not just a mental acknowledgement of the existence of a historical Jesus. It's Jesus, I trust you with my life. Paul says, remember, God is not distant. He didn't send his son to die to keep you at arm's length. We have been brought near by the blood of Christ, and that has been God's purpose and plan from the beginning. And let's close here in verse 19. Now, therefore... You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That word household, it means family. You are members of the family of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Those last verses, remember this, God is building something. God is building something right now. He's building a temple. And it's not an architectural temple. In Revelation 21, 22, we learn that in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, there is no physical temple, but I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb and his church are that temple. You know, a lot of times we think of the tabernacle, that was God's dwelling place. And then the temple, that became God's dwelling place. And then Christ came, and that became God's dwelling place. And then we became born again, and then we became God's dwelling place. As if God was moving from location to location. But let me tell you this, the Old Testament temple, where we think that, and I've taught this before, but as we study Paul's words, we, we start to really understand what the Old Testament temple was. We think about the temple as God's meeting place with mankind, right? That God wanted to be in the midst of his, his people, and that is what he was teaching them. But really, wasn't the temple more about separation? Think about how the temple was built. If you were a Gentile who had converted to Judaism, you could only get so close. 
You could go really only into that first phase of the temple, the temple, which was known as the court of the Gentiles. And then if you were a Jewish woman, you could get a little bit closer. You could go into the court of the women. If you were a Jewish, Jewish man, you could go into the court of men. And if you were a priest, you could go into the holy place. But the place that God dwelt, where the Ark of the Covenant was, only one man could go in once a year, the high priest. And he could enter into the holiest of holies as long as he had been obedient to all the rules God had set up for that year. Does that sound like God dwelling with his people? No, it was a reflection of how sin separates God so it separates us from God's presence. What's the point? Ephesians 2.19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the family of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fit together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord and whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Where does God live? In his church. God is building a dwelling place for himself. And when we gather together, we are a microcosm of what we will one day be. The dwelling place of God. Jesus Christ being our foundation and born-again believers being built up into the temple of God. There is no temple in heaven because we are that temple. The people of God are the dwelling place of God. That's why God gave Moses those instructions in Exodus chapter 25. He tells him how to build the tabernacle. And in verse really 21, he says, and I will meet my people there. The tabernacle and the temple were symbolic of the church. So what is our purpose? What does it mean to live? It means that God broke through. And now we don't have to walk in step, in step with the world or the devil or the flesh. We can walk in step with the Spirit of God. And as a body of believers, we are God's living dwelling place. And we get to serve as a living reminder to a dying world of God's wonderful plan for redemption. And every one of us plays a part in that. We are being built together. And if you are someone that, and again, let me give some context here. There's always a time sometimes where God calls you from one church to another. So that's not, there's nothing wrong with going from one church to another as long as God is leading that. But because there's a church on every corner now, we have the opportunity. If one thing offends us, we can jump ship and move on. But let me warn you. If you are the one, if you're the kind of person that jumps from church to church to church based on every offense, a lot of those people you're trying to get away from, you're going to spend eternity with. They're going to be there. 
So maybe we should figure out how to live with one another since we're going to be together for a very, very long time. We globally, as born-again believers, are being built into the dwelling place of God. Who we were, who we are now, who one day we will be. Let's pray. God, it's only you that can take a, a text from 2,000 years ago and give it life. But we know that you're not giving it life. It is life. It's your words. And you've preserved them for us. And you use them to shape us and mold us and remind us. And Lord, I pray that this morning would just be a reminder to your church of what you've saved us from and what you've saved us for. We don't have to walk in step with the world anymore. We get to walk in step with your heart and your desires. If, we'll just, if, if we would just allow you to work, and maybe that's where some of us are at. We're looking at our lives right now, and we're like, man, I'm falling back into that worldly way of living. These exercises in futility, building things up only to see them fall down. I have the foundation of Christ, but the materials I'm using to build, they're not of him, they're of my own making. And I am so thankful, Lord, that you remind us how um, forgiving you are. You just call us to repent. You call us to turn, and you call us home. So thank you, Lord. Again, help us to reflect who we really are, that we are individual stones that you've been building, and we are your dwelling place. You've made your home within us. Help us to set our minds on those things and not just the base things of this world. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.